You'll find the reading for this morning on page 147 in the Pew Bibles. Page 147 from the book of Numbers, chapter 11. Commencing to read at verse 1. Now the, now the people complained about their hardships in the hearing of the Lord, and when he heard them, his anger was aroused. Then fire from the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. When the people cried out to Moses, he prayed to the Lord and the fire died down. So that place was called Teborah because fire from the Lord had burned among them. The rabble with them began to crave other food. And again the Israelites started wailing and said, if only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost, and also the cucumbers, the melons, leeks, onions and garlic. But now we have lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. The manna was like coriander seed and looked like resin. The people went around gathering it and then ground it in a hand mill or crushed it in a mortar. They cooked it in a pot or made it into cakes, and it tasted like something made with olive oil. When the dew settled on the camp at night, the manna also came down. Moses heard the people of every family wailing, each at the entrance to his tent. The Lord became exceedingly angry, and Moses was troubled. He asked the Lord, Why have you brought this trouble on your servant? What have I done to displease you, that you put the burden of all these people on me? Did I conceive all these people? Did I give them birth? Why do you tell me to carry them in my arms, as a nurse carries an infant, to the land you promised on oath to their forefathers? Where can I get meat for all these people? They keep wailing to me, give us meat to eat. They keep wailing to me, give us meat to eat. I cannot carry all these people by myself. The burden is too heavy for me. If this is how you are going to treat me, put me to death right now, if I have found favour in your eyes. And do not let me face my own ruin. The Lord said to Moses, Bring me seventy of Israel's elders who are known to you as leaders and officials among the people. Make them come to the tent of meeting, that they may stand there with you. I will come down and speak with you there, and I will take the spirit that is on you and put the spirit on them. They will help you carry the burden of the people so that you will not have to carry it alone. Tell the people, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow when you will eat meat. The Lord heard when you wailed, if only we had meat to eat. We were better off in Egypt. Now the Lord will give you meat and you will eat it. You will not eat it for just one day, or two days, or five, ten or twenty days, but for a whole month. 
until it comes out of your nostrils and you loathe it because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wailed before him saying, why did we ever leave Egypt? But Moses said, here I am among 600,000 men on foot and you say, I will give them meat to eat for a whole month. Would they have enough if flocks and herds were slaughtered for them? Would they have enough if all the fish in the sea were caught for them? The Lord answered Moses, Is the Lord's arm too short? You will now see whether or not what I say will come true for you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There's a lot in this passage, um, and I'm aware it's opus 10, um, <laughs> but I hope no one's got the meat in the oven. Um, I will go as quick as I can. We're told that there are certain things we should avoid because they're deadly, like sharks, for example. But did you know that sharks only kill five people per year on average? Let's put that a little bit in perspective. Hippos kill 2,900 people each year in Africa. Jellyfish kill around 40 in the Philippines. Dogs kill 30 people each year in the US. There's plenty out there more likely to kill you than a shark. Like icicles, which kill 15 Americans every year. Cows kill another 20 Americans. Champagne corks kill 24 people every year. And we're not told to avoid them. Vending machines, not quite as dangerous, they kill two people every year. And what about our beds? Pretty safe place to be, you'd think. Falling out of bed kills 400 Americans every year. Need cot sides, I think. The world is not a safe place. Even hiding under our duvets is dangerous, apparently. But according to the book of Numbers, there's something much more dangerous. And it's something that we are all prone to from time to time. Grumbling. Now, here in Good Old Blighty, we like a bit of a grumble, don't we? We moan about the weather because it's too hot, or it's too cold, or it's too wet, or it's too dry. We moan that there's nothing on TV but repeats, and then sit and watch endless box sets of things we watched years ago. We moan that the Bake Off is going to Channel 4, and Mel, Sue, and Mary aren't going, so it'll be rubbish, and vow never to watch it again. But how many of us will, just in case it's good? But as the people of God, our grumbling can have a very different focus and lead to a much more dramatic result. The grumbling in our passage this morning comes from two places, from the people and from Moses, and has two root causes, discontent and disbelief. Now I'm going to look at the whole chapter, not just the bit we had read. Um, So if you can see a Bible, you might find it helpful just to skim over as we look at the second half. Because I'm going to look at the chapter in two sections. Firstly, we're going to look at what is going on with the people and Moses. Where does their discontent and disbelief come from? And then secondly, we'll look how God deals with their complaints. So, to begin, let's turn our attention to the people of Israel and their discontent. 
So far, numbers has been pretty positive. It's pretty upbeat. These are people who've been rescued from Egypt. They've been led out into, into the desert, freed from slavery, and they're off to the promised land. And God has shown them how to organize the camp. They've been counted, and the firstborn have all been redeemed uh, by the Levites. They've, just before this passage, they've been reminded of Passover and what that symbolizes and what it celebrates, God's rescue of his people. We know from the end of Exodus that as they walk through the desert, they were provided with food and water. This is a people freed from slavery, called out of the world by and for God, heading for the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the land promised to them for generations, the place they would call home, a place where they would build their lives and worship their God. God has shown incredible grace and blessing to these people. But at the beginning of chapter 11, it all starts to unravel. Verse 1, we see that the people complained about their hardships in the hearing of the Lord. Now, when Moses writes, in the hearing of the Lord, I don't think he means they were near enough to the temple for God to hear them. I don't think there's any doubt in Moses' mind that God can hear them wherever they are. So what does he mean by in the hearing of the Lord? If you've ever been to a restaurant and the food just isn't great, it's not bad, but it's a bit bland, maybe it's a bit cold, and you moan about it to everyone around the table... Then what do you say when the waitress comes over and asks how your meal is? Oh, it's lovely, thank you. I think that's what's going on here. The people aren't actually moaning to God. They're moaning behind his back, as it were, forgetting that while your waitress is blissfully unaware of your complaint, God isn't. Now, I'm all for camping, but after a year of it, in the desert, I'm sure the shine would wear off. So I'm kind of with them a little bit. But these people have been rescued from slavery. God has provided for them every step of the way, and they're moaning about how hard it is. Of course, the reality is that this grumbling started within days of leaving Egypt. We wish we could go back. But as they approach the promised land, their woe-is-me attitude is clearly rising to the surface again, and God's anger burns at them. They're just ungrateful. And he sends fire around the edges of the camp. Now, it strikes me that this is a warning. Moses intercedes for the people and the fire stops. But we don't read that anyone was killed. And later on, as we see that God has to deal with them in the same way, time and time again, actually people um, do die. But no one's killed here. It's just that the edges of the camp were burned up. Now, these people know what God is capable of. They've seen him bear his holy arm in Egypt. They saw how he dealt with Pharaoh, his people, his armies. So now they've been reminded of God's power, that little warning, look what will happen if you turn against me. You'd think they'd wind their necks in and stop complaining, wouldn't you? But no. Look at verse 4. The rabble with them began to crave other food, and again the Israelites start wailing. That word that's translated as rabble doesn't appear anywhere else in Scripture. Nowhere else. So translators had to kind of work out what Moses was talking about. But the fact that it says the rabble with them has led some commentators to believe that Moses might have been talking about 
Those that came out of Egypt with them who weren't Israelites, some of the Egyptians chose to escape with them. And they weren't actually all necessarily Egyptians. Some of them could have been slaves from other countries. So it seems that the discontent starts on the edge of the camp, maybe, where that fire started. The people on the fringes who haven't been completely assimilated into the people of Israel. But it doesn't stop with them, which is where it should have stopped. No, it spreads to the Israelites who take up their complaint and begin to wail. If only we had meat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. And cucumbers and melons and leeks and onion. But now we've lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. Talk about rose-tinted specks. A year on from leaving Egypt, and they have this warped picture of what it was like. Think of all the fish we had to eat at no cost. The implication is that their cupboards were bursting with food that somebody else provided for them. There is no way that was the case in Egypt. They were slaves. No one was giving them anything. Those fish they ate at no cost, they would have had to go out and catch them. The fruits and vegetables they talk about, they would have had to grow them. See, that's what discontent does. It makes us reimagine the past, the good old days. They've forgotten the slave masters who beat them, the baking sun they made bricks in, the hard slog to build pyramids and temples. They've forgotten having their children taken from them and killed. They just remember the food. And discontent makes us despise the present. All we ever see is this manner. It's really interesting that we then get such a vivid description from Moses of the manna. I think Moses is trying to give a little perspective on the situation. He's saying, hang on, let's just get it clear. This isn't that bad. What they're given to eat is given freely and abundantly. There were different ways of cooking it. And when our Bibles say it tasted like something made with olive oil, a better translation would be it tasted like cakes made with the finest oil. It's not just emergency rations designed to give you only what you need without much thought given to taste. This is good food. Psalm 78, 24 says, He rained down manna for the people to eat. He gave them the grain of heaven. Human beings ate the bread of angels. He gave them all the food they could eat. Human beings ate the bread of angels. Moses is reminding us that this manna they were complaining about was God's abundant blessing to his people, and they were bored of it. When I read this passage and was preparing for this morning, I became sharply aware of the times I do exactly the same thing. When I moan about having to move the barriers over in the hall yet again, or the fact that the sun comes through the skylight in my window in the, in the office in the morning and I can't see my computer. Or the fact that my office is upstairs and the photocopy is downstairs and it's really boring going up and down those stairs. All seemingly insignificant. But what I'm really saying is, God, this building, which you have so generously, graciously provided us with, is not good enough. And implicitly, I'm saying, I'd rather go back to the parish rooms with its scary broken stairs and dodgy plaster to not having an office at all, but working in a corner of my dining room at the other end of the village and having to move a table tennis up the road to the old village hall for drop zone every week. 
Now, it sounds ridiculous when you put it like that, but that's what the people of Israel were doing. They were telling God that what he had provided wasn't good enough, and they'd like to go back now, please. But what if they'd been right? What if it had been better in Egypt than it was now? What if manna really was just rubbish? Would it have been okay for them to grumble then? Well, no, it wouldn't. Because discontent might have caused them to reimagine the past, and it might have made them to despise the future, the present. But more importantly, it had led them to ignore the future. They were on their way to the promised land. They were going to this land flowing with milk and honey. Now, yes, it would take them 40 years to get there, and none of the generation that came out of Egypt would actually make it. But that wasn't the plan at this point in Numbers. Right now, every single one of them should have been looking to the future. So what if they had to spend a couple of years camping in the desert, eating the same thing every day? They were going to the land that God had prepared for them, a place of abundant blessing. You see, when things aren't going great, when stuff just isn't the way we want it to be, we can look one of three directions. We can look back and imagine that things were better. Life was so much simpler before you became a Christian, wasn't it? We can look down and hate the situation we find ourselves in. The Christian life is so hard, isn't it? Or we can look forward in sure and certain hope. The Christian hope of resurrection and life eternal in glory. Back, down or forwards. The choice is ours. Moses grumbled for a different reason. His complaint came from disbelief. In verse 11, he asks the Lord, Why have you brought this trouble on your servant? What have I done to displease you that you put the burden of all these people on me? Woe is me. It's the same complaint as the people, but its roots are different. He's not looking back and he's not looking down. He's found another direction to look in and that's in In the original Hebrew, Moses refers to himself 20 times in five verses. I, I, I. Me, me, me. Woe is me. He goes on, did I conceive all these people? Did I give them birth? Why do you tell me to carry them in my arms as a nurse carries an infant to the land you promised? Why do you tell me to carry them in my arms? Is that what God asked him to do? In Exodus 19:14, God says, You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Nowhere does God hand that task to Moses. He is called to be their leader, their advocate between, him, between them and God, but he is never asked to carry the people to the promised land. In his disbelief that God can change the situation, he's taken the responsibility on himself, but it's not his to take. It's not being given to him. He carries on with his rant and says, where can I get meat for all these people? He says, I cannot carry all these people by myself. The burden is too heavy for me. And then he suggests that God should just kill him there and then, which is maybe slightly overdramatic. Where can I get meat for all these people? Sounds familiar, doesn't it? The disciples asked Jesus pretty much the same thing when faced with 5,000 hungry people. Where can we buy food for them all? You see, at this point, ironically, what Moses needs to do is look back. Verse 23, God says, Is the Lord's arm too short 
You will see now whether or not what I say will come true for you. It's possible that the word now has been put on the wrong side of the question mark so that God's question to Moses is actually, is the Lord's arm too short now? He's telling Moses to take a look back. What has he seen God do? How has he seen God provide? Why does he not think God can do it now? God gives us responsibilities. He calls us into service. There are things we need to do, but we don't need to try and shoulder God's responsibilities for him. There are some things we will never be able to do. They are God's. So if we do ever look back, it should simply be to remind ourselves of what God has done and to remember that if the Lord's arm wasn't too short then, it won't be too short now. The situations we find ourselves in are what they are, and often they can't be changed. What can be changed is how we respond to them. We can complain and moan and wish for the past, or wish we were dead. We can think like Paul. Philippians 4.12 says, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. How we deal with what life throws at us depends on where we're looking. Are we looking back and longing for the past? Are we looking down and getting caught up in the mire of our current situation? Or are we looking forward to what we know lies ahead? Now, I'm going to look very briefly at how God responds to these two complaints. There is really a whole other sermon in there, but I promise I will be a few minutes. God deals with the issue that is the most pressing first, which isn't the woe is me, we hate manner wailing of the people. He turns his attention first to Moses. Because while Moses handled it badly and blew it out of all proportion, he actually had a point. He can't possibly lead such a huge group of people on his own, especially when they spend so much of their time behaving like spoiled brats. And so God asked Moses to identify 70 elders who he knows to have leadership skills and call them together. And he promises to take some of the spirit he's put on Moses and put it on these 70 men. Now, some commentators have seen this as a punishment for Moses complaining that the measure of spirit he will keep is reduced, that it will actually be spread out. But it makes more sense that it's actually like lighting one candle from another. The flame in the first isn't diminished when the next is lit. Moses isn't losing any of the authority God has given him. He's not losing any of the Holy Spirit But these men are called to share the burden of leadership with Moses. And it's a pattern we should be following in all sorts of areas. Adrian cannot lead this church on his own. It is too big and too busy for one person to run. I can't run the children's department on my own. Fran can't do the youth work on his own. Mark can't do whatever it is Mark does on his own. (laughs) Julie actually can run the office on her own and is probably better off without the help of the staff team, to be honest, but she's a very special case. I feel very blessed to be part of a staff team who work so closely together and support each other and share the burden of leadership, but we each have teams of people who share the work, share the decision-making, take the strain. And that shared leadership should be evident in every area of our life as a church not just those areas that have a staff member. We should see on our music teams, the sound team, coffee rotors, the flowers, 12 to 2, everything we do, none of it should be left to any one person. 
Too often we can be guilty of leaving the work to somebody else. It's not really my thing. I don't have the skills. I'm too busy. It's the call I hear all the time. Somebody else will have to do it. Now, we have some really good somebody else's in this church, quite a few of them, but they do a lot. If a problem shared is a problem halved, the same is true for leadership and service in the church. So do everyone a favor. Be somebody else. Find a place to serve. And remember that when you're too busy to to do something, somebody else, more often than not, somebody equally busy, has to step up and do the job. Because the job's only doing in the end. God provides Moses uh, with 70 people. He provides for his needs abundantly and graciously. And he responds to the people just as abundantly, but with a very different agenda. So what is his response to the people's craving for meat? Well, he basically says, you want meat? I'll give you meat. In verse 18, he says, now the Lord will give you meat and you will eat it. You will not just eat it for one day or two days or five or ten or twenty, but for a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and you loathe it because you have rejected the Lord. And he does just that. Let me read for you what happens in the bit of the passage we haven't heard in verse 31. Now a wind went out from the Lord and drove quail in from the sea. It scattered them up to two cubits. That's about 90 centimeters deep all around the camp. As far as a day's walk in any direction, all that day and night and all the next day, the people went out and gathered quail. No one gathered less than ten homers. Now, if you've got your Bible open, you will see a footnote at the bottom that says that's about 1.6 metric tons each. Now, that seemed a little unlikely to me, so I did a bit of research, a bit of searching on the internet, and everything I read confirmed the likelihood of that figure. I found a piece that described some very complicated calculations about densities of quail and whatever um, that had been done, which I'm not going to go into detail of, but it estimated that Moses was saying no one collected less than 1,900 birds each. Now, if you assume that by all the people, Moses actually means just the 600,000 men of fighting age that's usually used as the count, that means 1.14 billion birds. That is seven times as many quail as are alive now. Now, as far as I can see, there are three possibilities. Firstly, it's an accurate figure, which, of course, would be much, much bigger if Moses actually means all the people, and it's simply mind-blowing. Secondly, it's a mistake. There's a suggestion that the measure should have been ten omers, not homers. But an omer is a hundredth of the size. So now we'd be talking about 19 birds each. And that's never going to take 48 hours to catch unless they're really difficult. Or thirdly, there's a little bit of poetic license being used and it's an exaggeration. I don't know. But if it is, the point is clearly to show how ridiculously abundant God's blessing was. And I say blessing in inverted commas because the passage goes on. But while the meat was still between their teeth and before it could be consumed, the anger of the Lord burned against the people and he struck them with a severe plague. Therefore, the place was named Kibroth Hatava, which means graves of craving, because there they buried the people who craved other food. Now, some commentators have described the plague as a punishment for their greed. But the issue wasn't greed. The issue wasn't even food, really. God said he was going to give them so much that they would come to loathe the thing they craved because they had rejected the Lord 
and wanted to go back to Egypt. They were like the prodigal son who didn't want to wait for his inheritance. They had incredible blessing promised to them in the future, the near future, in fact. But they refused to be content with what they had now, and they were punished for it. The saying goes, be careful what you wish for, because you might just get it. For me, this is a picture of what will happen at the final judgment. When all those who've craved a life without God will be given exactly what they desire forever. We need to be careful what we're pinning our hopes on. Remembering Jesus' warning that where our treasure is, there our heart will be. The flip side is that if the thing we really desire is the kingdom of God, we can rest in the sure and certain hope that we will see it. And it will be more than we could possibly imagine. In the midst of trouble or just the daily slog of life, it can be easy for us to get caught up in pining for a past that never really existed or wallowing in our present situation and hating the way we're having to live now. But as the redeemed, rescued, freed people of God, we should learn the lesson that Israel never really grasped, but which Paul warned us of in 1 Corinthians 10. So I'll leave the last word to him. And do not grumble, as some of them did, and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples that were writ- and were written down as warnings for us, on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you're, sta- if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted... He will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Amen.